0: So you guys have seen this before. Um, this is going to be the cycle of sin in the book of Judges. The Sin, suffering, sorrow, salvation. Sin, suffering, sorrow, salvation. You're going to continue to see this every single week because this is the theme of Judges. Where we are right now, we've seen the cycle. We've seen what's, what happens over and over. What we're, they're starting to do now is they're starting to go down the toilet bowl. So we started out with some judges who were, were, were good judges, right? We didn't see very bad traits in them. We, we saw that they were good judges, good men uh, and women with Deborah. But where we are now, we're about to go down. I think of where Gideon is. He's an in-between judge where he's not great, but he's also not the worst judge ever. So I think of him as like the Dallas Cowboys, right? He's too so- Is it too soon? He's, uh, he's not great, but he's not the, he's, they're not the worst, right? He doesn't make the playoffs every year. So I titled this one, God's Election is Our Qualification. Right? We saw last week Deborah and Barak. We saw that they, are, they were both instruments in God's hand, and we saw the sovereignty of God. We saw the routing of Sisera through Heber the Kenite and Jael driving the tent peg through his temple, which was pretty intense. So make sure to be nice to your wives and don't have tent pegs in your home. So we talk about, Ken touched on it a little bit last week, but in Hebrews 11, there's this hall of faith, Um, and there's guys like Abraham, Isaac, David, um, these great characters in the Bible, and Gideon is actually mentioned in this hall of faith as well. If we go to verse 29, it says, By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, and David and Samuel, and the prophets. So Gideon somehow made it into this hall of faith. Gideon is mentioned with some of these great men and great people in the Bible. And I think it's going to be really easy for us to think Gideon's in this because of the 300. When we think of Gideon, that's what we think. We think of the Sunday school Bible story the 300 men that Gideon took out and you know, took over thousands upon thousands of, of warriors. But what I'm gonna to argue today is that Gideon's faith, the reason he's in this Hebrews 11 hall of faith is because of what he does in chapter six, not chapter seven. Right, God calls this weak and misunderstood Gideon at the beginning of his life. And that is why he is in this Hebrews 11 is because he chooses to step out in faith. So Gideon stems from Manasseh, Manasseh is right below Ophrah, and he actually has some dominance uh, and area of influence in Mount Tabor, where you'll see Elon, um, one of the judges that we'll see in the future, is from as well. So Israel. This is Israel. Where does Israel's qualification from? Why are we doing this in judges? Why Why do we have this cycle continuing to come? It's because this is their qualification. If we go to Joshua 1, 3 through 8, it says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I had promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, river Euphrates, and the land of the Hittites, the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. He goes on to say, For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. This is Israel, right? This is Israel's qualification. We should know this. Israel's qualification does not come from their great army. It hasn't come because they have grown as a people and because they're super holy now. Israel's qualification comes strictly off the promises of God. The promises of God are what allow Israel to take that promised land. It's qualification. So just by a show of hands, have you guys ever gotten a job or had a responsibility where you feel like you're not qualified for it? Anyone? Thank you. Thank you guys for raising your hands. I've had a few services where no one raised their hand. I'm like, yeah, you guys are all qualified for your job, whatever. Um, But it doesn't just have to be your job, right? It's any responsibility. It's being a father. It's maybe leading at a church. Maybe it's being a table shepherd. Or maybe it's being a husband. Right? We all have responsibilities in our, in our lives and tasks that we have been appointed to that we feel a sense of self-disqualification. You know, There's moments in our lives where we feel like, man, I am, I'm not prepared for this. I'm not ready for this. I look at my life right now. I, I get, I'm standing on a stage. I get to talk about Jesus. But six years ago, I didn't know Jesus at all. Right? The only reason that I'm able to stand here now is because God has opened a door and allowed me to walk through it to do this. You know, Two years ago, I was working in, in business, and, and now I'm reading the Bible and talking to people about Jesus for my career. and man, there's people in the crowd who know more about the Bible than I do. The only qualification I have for this job for this role is that God had appointed me to be here in this season. I'll give you another illustration. I played football at TCU, right? And there's no better sense of self-disqualification than the moment I stepped on that field against some of those guys. Some of these guys, you know, they're 240 pounds and they run a second faster 40 than I do. But I stepped on the field and I'm like, what the heck am I doing here? I'm like, why? Why? Why am I here? But looking back on it, I realize now that God had appointed me to be on that team so that I might come to know him. I gave my life to Christ my sophomore year of college, and that was while I was on the TCU football team. Uh, I went to an FCA Christian camp, heard the gospel for the first time, and it completely changed my life, completely. Uh, A year later, I left the football team and I actually started working for the church and just fell in love with Jesus over and over and over. But if I didn't, if I wasn't raised up by the Lord through high school and into college and to be put on that team, guys, The reason I was there is so that I would come to know him. I felt a sense of self-disqualification on that field, and I don't think that it's just me, right? I think if we're honest, I believe most men feel a sense of self-disqualification somewhere. You can think of a task or a responsibility that you have where you feel like you're not up for the challenge. And if you aren't, let's look at some of this. Every 13 seconds, there's a divorce in America. Almost 20 million children live without a father in their home. 80% of all suicides are from men, and 30% of men suffer from depression. Man, these all show that men feel a sense of self-disqualification. If we're honest about our shortcomings, guys, what do we believe about ourselves? Where does that qualification come from? Why are we able to do the things that we have responsibility to do? My question for you guys today is do we believe that we're qualified for the task at hand or are we just going forward with what the culture has told us and pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps? Because if we're doing that, we're making a grave mistake. Imagine that task that you're thinking of and imagine that God had ordered you to do it, right? That God has ordered you to be a father. God has ordered you to be in the job that you're in. That changes things for us. Right? No longer is the responsibility on us. No longer is the power on, in our hands. It's completely in the Lord's hands. He's told you to do it, so do it. Right? It completely changes our perspective. We see it through a different lens now. And that's what we're going to see today in the life of Gideon. The life of Gideon is going to continually be about who God is. And so today, as we go through this chapter, I don't want you to look at it and think, man, Gideon's awesome, because you're missing the point. Right? God is raising up Gideon. God is equipping Gideon. We're going to see that God never makes bad choices, even when he chooses a weak and misunderstood Gideon. So where are we? Where are we in the story of Judges? Israel's just been delivered once again. They had 30 years of peace under Deborah, and now they're in need of a deliverer once again. Right? They're oppressed by Midian, and they're starting cycle number four. And this one, as we've talked about, is starting that downward spiral. Gideon is an okay judge, but he's not great. So, Israel gets oppressed. And verse 1 The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. So, guys, we're back in the saddle, right? They're abandoning God. They're doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 3 For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel. No sheep, no ox, and no donkey. It says they laid waste to the land as they came in. So Israel is not in a good place right now. God has given them into the hand of the Midianites. Midian has oppressed Israel the worst of any oppression that they've had yet in this book. Right? Their, their land is plundered. They're living in caves and they're living in dens. There's no sustenance. It, Midian was interested not in slavery. They were interested in allowing Israel to raise up crops and raise up livestock and then just taking it from them. Right? Economically, it makes sense. They're economically exploiting Israel. They're taking their fruit that God had promised them. I think before, it's, it's important to remember that God had promised Israel blessings. Right? And, and, and Israel's fruitful. Israel is raising up crops. They're fruitful. Their land is fruitful. Their livestock is fruitful. But the people of the East are coming and taking it from them. They're not getting to enjoy that fruitfulness. Why is this happening? Guys, this is the Lord's discipline. As we will continue to see throughout the book of Judges, God continues to hand over Israel into the hand of their enemies so that they will turn back to the Lord. It's God's mercy. It's God's sovereignty. God wants Israel to turn back and remember their first love. What was Israel promised compared to where they are? Exodus 3.17 says, I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. But what does Israel have? They're living in caves. Joshua 1.9, I will be with you wherever you go. Israel is utterly destroyed. Of course, they're thinking, where is God in this? Exodus 33.14, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest but Israel's land is laid to waste. And lastly, Deuteronomy 4.31, he will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. But Israel is in constant fear of the enemy, devouring their fruitfulness. So what happens from here, right? We know the cycle. Israel is going to finally cry out. So what does God do? What we expect him to do, and what he's done in the past, is he raises up a deliverer. But this time is different, right? This is important because God does something. He sends a prophet. It says, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. This is different from what we expect. So we need to pay attention to why. Why did he send a prophet instead of a deliverer? First reason is to remind Israel of who he is. In verse 8, he says, I brought you up from Egypt. And in verse 10, he says, I am the Lord your God. This is beautiful because God is reminding Israel who he is. Right? Israel had assimilated the Midianite gods and Midianite culture into themselves, so they almost looked like one civilization now. And God is reminding them, I'm not the idols that you're serving. I'm not the other gods you're serving. I am the God of your fathers. I am the God that brought you out of Egypt. I am your first love. I'm the God that your fathers talked about. The stories that you've heard about are from me. And the second reason is to show Israel what the real problem was, they needed to know why they needed rescuing. It took them seven years to cry out to God. Last week, Ken talked about how it took Israel 20 years to cry out to God before Deborah and Barak. But this time it took them seven years of having their land plundered and living in caves and dens. Seven years they lived like that until they finally cried out to God. He says, You have not obeyed my voice. He's reminding Israel the problem's not Midian, the problem is you, Israel. The problem's not that you're getting your stuff taken. The problem is that you have abandoned God. You have abandoned your first love. This prophet's important because he's dealing with Israel's heart before he deals with Israel's circumstance. Israel's disobedience led to a lack of repentance. I know we've seen this before. In verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, they're crying out because their sheep, their ox, and their donkey was being taken. They weren't crying out because they had lost God or because they had forgotten God. They had abandoned him, and they're crying out because they're turning to their last source. What else can we do to get our stuff back? Well, I guess we'll cry out to that God. Israel's fruitfulness is being devoured by their lack of true repentance, right? Israel is still fruitful. Israel is still raising up the crops. They have everything that they need, but they can't enjoy it. They can't use it. They're fruitless because they're faithless. So what do we learn from this? What's the point of this? Why do I tell you this? We need to remember that holding on to our relationship with Jesus is the main priority. Guys, no matter what happened to Israel, if they had held on to their relationship with the Lord, they could have gone through anything. They would have had everything that they could have possibly needed. And I want us to remember that in our lives. My prayer for us is that regardless of what we learn today, is that to hold on to our relationship with Jesus as our main priority, as the number one. Because Israel's disobedience and their abandonment of God led to fruitlessness. Our disobedience can lead to God lovingly turning us back to Him. Right? God is allowing the fruitlessness in Israel so that we may see what we ultimately need. So Israel may see what they they ultimately need. They don't need their sheep and their ox and their donkey back, they need their relationship with their Lord back. And lastly, I want us to ask ourselves are we relying on God at all in our lives? We, as men, are we relying on God? Do we have a plan for what our day today is going to look like? Right? If God tugs on our heart halfway through the day and tells us, you know, to share the gospel or, you know, go pray for your family or call your wife, are we saying, no, I don't have time for that? I have an idea for what my day is going to look like, and it wasn't that. Man, this breaks my heart because if Israel was to rely on God throughout this They wouldn't have needed to cry out. They wouldn't have had those seven years that they needed to cry out. They would have still gone through affliction just as we will go through affliction and suffering. But they wouldn't have needed to cry out because they would have had everything they needed in their God. So ask yourself that question Are we relying on the Lord at all in our lives? Do we have somewhere in our life where if God doesn't show up, we're going to be in deep trouble? Because we need to be having those so that we can see when He does show up, we can give Him glory and we will continually to see him show up over and over and over. We've seen this before guys, regret versus repentance. I know that you're probably sick of this slide, but drill it into your brain. The root issue is the abandonment of God. The root issue here is not stuff being taken, it's not the deliverer. The root issue is the abandonment of God. Israel was looking for escape and they needed was healing. Israel was looking for a quick fix when they needed to change their heart. I think of this constantly is finding mold in your house, right? If you find mold on your wall and you paint over it instead of tearing down the wall, that's what Israel was doing. Israel was continually painting over this. What does God do with that, right? With this unrepentant people, what does God do with Israel? He mercifully and wonderfully sends a deliverer, regardless that they haven't truly repented yet. He loves them. This is his people. He's going to continue to deliver him. So he raises up this deliverer. In verse 11, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Hoash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Uh, real quick, I want to remind you about Manasseh. Right? Gideon stems from Manasseh. Manasseh had this charge to go take out the inhabitants of the land back in the beginning of Judges. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean in its villages or Tanakh in its villages or the inhabitants of Dor in its villages. For the inhabitants of Iblim in its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo in its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. This is Manasseh. Right? They didn't drive out five different inhabitants that the Lord had told them to drive out. And even when they grew strong enough, they weren't willing to drive them out because it was easier. Because it was easier to keep them around, to have them be slaves. Right? Manasseh didn't want to get rid of the mold that was in their house. They wanted to continue to paint over it because it was easier and it made more sense economically for them. Manasseh was weak in faith and they were weak in action. And this is where Gideon is stemming from. So the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. Some commentators hint at this being an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. They believe this because of verse 14 that says the Lord turned. Verse 16 that says the Lord said to him. So he is identifying as the Lord. Don't take my word for it. I said half of the commentators do. Ken actually doesn't agree with this, so just know. If if it is true, it's a theophany. It's a visible manifestation of God in the Old Testament. But regardless, guys, I don't want you to walk away in your question to be about the angel of the Lord. What I want you to walk away with is that God is not waiting for his people to repent before he begins his saving work. Right? That's why we repent. We repent because he's begun his saving work in us. And this is such a great picture of God raising up a deliverer, even though his people are not repentant. That's what true love looks like. So where's Gideon? Gideon is beating wheat in a wine press. Real quick, I want to let you know what it's like to separate wheat from the chaff, from the chaff from the grain. Normally what you do, you would stand up on top of a hill and you would wave this back and forth. You'd wave the wheat back and forth so the wind would pick up and it would take the chaff and then you just have the wheat left. But what's Gideon doing? Gideon's doing this in a hole in the ground. Right? I just picture the the little wheat waving right above, trying to get it up there. He's doing it because he's terrified. He's doing it because he knows that Midianites are going to come and strip him of the crops. He's scared of them. This is awesome because this is like us, right? We see an insight to the doubt and the weakness of Gideon here. And we've all been there. We've all been in this hole wondering, where is the Lord? Like, what is happening? This is the man that God's choosing to use, this Gideon. This is the Gideon, not the Gideon of the 300 of the Bible. And let's remember that. God makes the Gideon of the 300 into that. This is the man that he's choosing to use. The Lord says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Guys, Gideon's doing humiliating work when God comes to him and tells him this. I just picture Gideon in that bottom of that hole looking up at this angel of the Lord and being like, Dude, who are you talking to? I'm in, I'm in, a, I'm in a hole. I'm doing humiliating work. I've, I'm not the mighty man of valor you're talking about, he's full of fear. this is awesome because God is saying, you will be a mighty man of valor because I have told you that you're a mighty man of valor. Not that you're prepared, not that you're equipped, not that you have incredible self-discipline. He's saying, you're a mighty man of valor because I've chosen you. As of this moment, right now, you are a mighty man of valor. Gideon hasn't done anything yet, right? Nothing. He's struggling to provide for his family, and this shows God's sovereignty God doesn't wait for Gideon to be qualified. He qualifies him instantly. In the same way, God doesn't wait for you guys, or any of us, or men in general, to be qualified when he calls them to himself. He qualifies them instantly. This reminds me of sanctification. We talked about it last series. God, when you are saved and when you come to know Christ, God says, you are holy. You are my saint. But I'm going to continue to work on you. I'm going to continue to refine you and make you more holy. So what does Gideon do from here? He doubts, as any of us would. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon asks a good question. Where is God today? Gideon does not know God. Gideon has been raised in a household that worships other gods. And as you will see, his father has an idol in his own home. Gideon doesn't know God. He doesn't know the difference. He's heard stories about this God that had saved his people from Israel, but he doesn't know God. Gideon's also seeing the people of Israel's trouble as God's abandonment. And how often do we do this? Before we cast judgment on Gideon and see him as weak, may we think how many times do we see our lives and we're going through a tough time and think, man, God's not with us right now. Or we see someone else doing really well and we think, man, God's blessing is on that guy. Or when we pray and we don't hear an answer, right, or maybe God's saying no. We think the Lord's not listening to my prayers right now. But guys, how wrong are we? Israel's trouble is God's mercy here. As we know, God had handed Israel over so that they would turn back to the Lord. Gideon does not know that. We get a sneak peek into that. The point was turning back to the one true God and abandoning all other gods. Tim Keller puts it way better than I ever could. He says, The Bible is filled with stories of figures such as Joseph, Moses, and David, in which God seemed to have abandoned them. But later it is revealed he was dealing with the destructive idols in their lives and they could only have come to pass through their experience of difficulty. What difficulty do we have in our lives where we, we look at it and we think that the Lord's not in this? Maybe it's our marriages. Maybe it's a sickness that you're dealing with. There are so many things in our lives where we could look at this and think that difficulty equals God not with us or abandonment of God from, from us. But guys, my prayer for you and my prayer for men in the world is that we may look at difficulty and try to find what God is doing in our life. Maybe it's an idol that he's illuminating near you that you need to tear down. Or maybe he's just sanctifying you. My prayer is that we don't see difficulty as God's abandonment, but we see it as God's mercy. Gideon says, Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon is verbally expressing that he's not qualified for the job. Gideon's saying, "Who, You know who you're talking to? I'm beating wheat in a wine press, man. I'm poor. can't provide my family. I'm not going to save Israel. But this is the Gideon that God's chose. God doesn't make bad choices, and he's chosen Gideon. Who else do we see this from? Moses, right? Exodus 4.1, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And in 4.10, Moses said, "Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. God's election is these guys' only qualification, right? What are these guys doing outside of God's election? One is struggling to provide for his family, and the other one's been hanging out with sheep for 40 years. These guys are not qualified outside from the Lord. God is their strength because outside of God, they have none. He is their strength. He equips them. Look at verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. But I will be with you. Guys, this is the answer. Underline this. Make a note of this. This is the answer that we're looking for. Gideon's equipping and our equipping comes from God's qualification alone. His equipping didn't come from self-help books. His equipping didn't come from grit or pulling himself up by his bootstraps. His equipping didn't come from another idol that promised him a better life. His equipping came from God's qualification alone. And guys, our equipping, our qualification comes from laying down our weakness and allowing God's strength to be our strength. We are not good enough on our own. Right, I think there's a really tough topic that comes up in our culture That says men need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they need to just do it. They need to just get it done. And I think that's very, very dangerous. Because that makes it seem like we don't need to have weaknesses. We can't have weaknesses or we're not men, which is a lie. If we look at the gospel, the great men in the gospel laid down their weaknesses to the Lord. Look at Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 19. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Guys, our qualification, our strength, comes from laying down these weaknesses. Where we feel unqualified, lay that down to the Lord. And that's where we gain strength from, not from fixing it ourselves. God equips Gideon by his word. And the next he assures him. He assures him of what he's going to have to do. Gideon says, If I have found favor in the eyes, and please show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And the angel of the Lord says, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and then pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, for you shall not die. And Gideon built an altar of their Lord and called it the Lord's peace. So what happened here? Gideon wants to know that this is truly God speaking to him, right? He's grown up in a household that had assimilated God with other gods, and he's trying to make sure, is this truly the God of Egypt? Right? Gideon shows some faith here, but God is patient. This is such an awesome picture of the love of the Lord. He's patient, and he stands there and waits for Gideon to make this offering. Gideon recognizes here as well that this is from God, right? He's so afraid he thinks he's going to die. That's what happens. That's what happens when all these characters in the Bible encounter the Lord face to face. They recognize the Lord's holiness and they see how unholy they are. I'm going to die. I'm done. That's what happens. God's giving him assurance. God is showing them that he is the Lord God and he has called him to this task. He gives him assurance and he gives him peace. He calls the place the Lord is peace. So Gideon has what he needs to move forward. What does God tell him to do next? Where does Gideon go from here? His first task. That night, the Lord said to him, "Take your father's bull and the second bull, and the seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down." So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of town to do it by day, he did it by night. So this altar, like we talked about. They have continually assimilated the Midianite gods into their culture and into their own homes. Right? This altar is his fa- it's on his father's property. His father probably funded it. This is the home that Gideon had grown up in. We get a sneak peek into the true abandonment of God, what had happened in Israel. This is in an Israelite town. This is where Gideon lives. Gideon finally gets it, right? He takes the ten men, and he does as the Lord has told him to do. I think it's easy to look over this verse. This is a dangerous task, right? The Israelites worship this God. They run to this God when they're having trouble. They go to this God when they need something. What Gideon is doing is he's waging war on Midian. He's waging war and saying, we are not going to serve this God anymore. We have the one true God of Israel. It's highly dangerous, but it's nothing compared to what he's going to have to do. We know that he's going to have to take those 300 men. We know that he's going to have to show an immense amount of faith. God is allowing him to be a faithful with a little right here so that he can be faithful with much later. He's too afraid of his family in the man town to do it by day, so he did it by night. Gideon's scared. He's still—we get this sense of weakness and doubt in Gideon. You know, he's still scared. God has told him to do it. He's equipped him. He's given him all he's needed but Gideon is still scared. And the men figure out pretty quickly who's done this. He says, When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. The asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Hoash, has done this thing. So, pretty quick turnover. They figure it out almost immediately. Gideon's tearing down these idols. God is tearing down these idols through Gideon. And he's saying, get rid of these false gods among you before I do a mighty work in Israel. Guys, this is how our lives are changed. Right? God is going to illuminate these idols that we're holding onto so tight and force us to choose. Our God's a jealous God. Our God is not a God who's going to live amongst other idols. What idol could God be asking us to remove in our life that's going to cause tension? Pretty much all of them. Every idol that exists in your life wants to be God. That's what an idol is. taking the place of God. I imagine what would happen if God had come to you tomorrow morning and said, take the TV out of your house, right? Your family would be in an uproar. Your children would riot. They'd go in the streets together and pitchforks. It'd be terrifying, right? You would have no idea, but that is the tension. I mean, to a much extended level, that's the tension that we need to be feeling. Where in our lives is God, not God? Where in our lives is something else we're running to, we're turning to for love Where are we turning to for hope? God is the one who has done this thing. Right? God is the deliverer. For us to look at this chapter and see Gideon is to miss the point completely. The answer to Israel's problem is God. It's not Gideon. It never was Gideon. So may we not read this book and think that Gideon is the one that saved Israel. God raised him up by the hand, gave him all that he needed to begin to save Israel. God does everything that... Gideon needs to get through this. All Gideon has to do is be obedient. He even clothes him in his spirit. So now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. The spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The enemies of Israel encamp around them. Israel is now separated, right? They had been assimilated. They had become almost one culture. God had pulled them apart again, and that is awesome. That is what God wanted from the beginning. He wanted Israel to be a separate people. He wanted to do his mighty work in Israel, and now they're separate again. Gideon is equipped. He's elected. God has assured him that he is the God of Israel, and he is going to save Israel through him. After being clothed by the Lord, right, Gideon sees these masses come to him. They follow him into battle, and Gideon still struggles to believe. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you've promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand. We all know this story, right? This is the two fleeces, the two signs that God gives Gideon. He says, then I will know. Gideon shows here that he has an imperfect faith, as we all do. Right? How many of us, when we become saved, know everything there is to know about God and can answer any hard question? Gideon still has doubt. Even though he's recognized he's been qualified, he has doubts, as we continually will have doubts. That's the sanctification of God. God's called Gideon. God's equipped Gideon. He's given him everything he needs, but he's going to continue to work on Gideon as a leader and as a man of God. What's beautiful about this is that God was still merciful. Gideon's obedience was imperfect, but God still used him. He chose to use him. God's telling Gideon here, I didn't make a bad choice in choosing you. I'm going to assure you once again that I'm the God of Israel, that I am going to deliver you. Most important point of this verse, guys, is that Gideon took his lack of faith to God. Gideon didn't take his lack of faith as disqualification. He didn't say, because I'm struggling to believe, I'm not prepared for this. Gideon didn't take his lack of faith to another idol, and Gideon also didn't take his lack of faith and turn to self-development. He didn't say, hold on, let's not attack yet. Let me go get better at what I'm doing, and then I can attack with you. No, Gideon just took that lack of faith and put it in God. Like the father in Mark 9:24 says, help my unbelief. Gideon's doing the same thing. Guys, my prayer is that we would do this as well. We would take our lack of faith. We would take our sense of disqualification that lies somewhere in our life, and we would put it in the hands of a mighty God. Right? I felt disqualified when I I had my first child. My son's named Shepherd. He's two and a half years old. When we first had Shepherd, when he was about three weeks, the first three weeks of his life, Shepherd would wake up in the middle of night and cry like any baby. I would wake up in a deep sleep still almost, and think, man, that really sucks for whatever kid that is. And is. I'd, I'd awake and be like, oh my gosh, it's mine. I have to go fix that. I have to figure it out. And I didn't feel as though I was qualified. I didn't feel as though I was prepared for this. I was 23 years old when we had Shepherd, and I was like, man, I was at, I was at frat parties two years ago, and now I'm, now I'm holding on to a child, and I'm responsible for this life. But man, since having Shepherd, I have matured in ways that I never thought I could have matured. I have fallen deeper in love with my wife, and Shepherd has changed my life more than I could have ever imagined. That would have never happened if I had waited to the point when I thought I was qualified to be a father. Gideon's lack of faith was his weakness, right? His doubt. But he took that lack of faith and put it in a mighty God. And that's my prayer for you guys. My prayer for you guys is that you take your lack of faith, you take wherever you feel disqualified, and you put that in God. May we stop trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and may we put it in the Lord and see his strength work in our lives. So when they ask who has done this thing, may we always answer. The answer then, the answer now is God alone. The story was never about Gideon from the beginning. And if we are walking with Christ, guys, if we have been saved— The story shouldn't be about us. The story shouldn't be about all the great things we have done. Our story should be man, I was weak here. I was nothing. But the Lord raised me up and showed his strength through my weakness. That should be our story so that God may get the glory. God calls, God equips. And guys, God never makes bad choices. Ken talked about it last week, right? You're in this room for a purpose. You may have set your alarm, you may have walked through the doors but God allowed it to happen. God has allowed you to be a father. God has allowed you to be an employee. He's allowed you to be a husband. Wherever you are in life, whatever you bring into this room, you are there because God has allowed it to happen. So may we remember to take those weaknesses where we feel disqualified, remember that God has qualified us for it already, and put those weaknesses in a mighty God. Our inadequacy, guys, Our inadequacy with God is perfection. So help us to remember that. Help us to remember that the victories come from the Lord. So that's the start of the discussion questions. What victory have you seen when God got the glory? Where in your life have you seen that, yeah, that was God? God did that, right? Mine was TCU football. Mine was me coming to know the Lord through playing football at TCU. And maybe you don't have one. Maybe you don't have one where you've seen God get the glory. That's fine. That's fine but be honest with the men at your table. Find that moment in your life where you think that God's working. What specific weaknesses can we lay down to allow God to be our strength? Again, guys, these men at your table are there to lift you up. Be honest about your weaknesses. We as men need to be more honest to dispel the lie that we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Where are you weak? And where can God be your strength? And lastly, guys, most importantly, take time to pray for the men at your table today. Let's admit our weaknesses to the Lord, admit them to the people around us, to our community of brothers, and ask that the Lord may be our strength there. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for these men. Thank you for the fact that they have come here, Lord, to hear your word. Um, I thank you for the life of Gideon, that we get to see that you qualify, Lord. You elect. You give us everything that we could possibly need. So may we walk in that strength, Lord. May we walk in admitting our weaknesses and allowing you to be our strength because you are a good God who loves his people as we continue to see. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Bless our discussion today and bless our time as we go out. Uh, thank you, Jesus. It's near. your pray. Amen.